Thank you for listening to our New Life Christian Center podcast. Stay tuned after the sermon for more ways to connect with us. We're in Proverbs chapter 23 today. If you'd like to turn there, we will get started. Hopefully, you are continuing to read with us throughout the month or with throughout the week, working your way through. You uh, can't be hurt by uh, processing Proverbs. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Bless you, Father, for all that you do. We thank you, Father, your word is living. It's active. It separates, Father, between the thoughts and intents of our heart. Father, in that place where you live, your word is at work keeping us aligned with your intent in the earth today. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Proverbs is such an interesting thing. So let me just, let me just uh, uh, talk for a little bit, okay? Um, one of the things that I want you to recognize, whenever, whenever you're reading the Old Testament, well, actually reading any part of the Bible, it's pretty important that you recognize who's being spoken to. And when you do that, you can then say, okay, this is kind of a universal thing that, that uh, it, it translates into our life. Or you can say this was something for them. So there are certain prophetic type scriptures um, in the Old Testament in particular about the Messiah and about the Jews that unless your theology is goofy, you, you need to handle it correctly. And in this case, this book was, was likely written to train upcoming sons of Solomon for ruling and reigning. Now, none of us live in a kingdom. We've likely, unless you've, you've lived in, in England or in the United Kingdom, you, you've not been subject to the understanding of kingship. And so when you read these things, you wonder, or I wonder, well, how does this apply since we don't live that way? We don't have anything to kind of base this on or any foundation to lay it on. So what I want you to continue to think about is the three times in the New Testament where the Bible tells us we are priests and kings unto God. So, so what that means is that our, that our own personal relationship with Jesus Christ in maturity leads us to an understanding of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ or the rule and reign of God himself on the earth. So these are principles that help us understand how kingship works. Now, when you look at them, they're kind of simple things. And so we're in Proverbs chapter 23, but notice it says in verse number four, that's where we'll start today. Proverbs 23 and four, it says, do not overwork to be rich. Now, now <laughs> um, David and Solomon were like crazy rich. The sons that they had would have inherited that riches, those riches. I mean, David was the guy raising all the money to build the temple of Solomon that was revered all over the known world at that point as being the most spectacular building ever. It just had hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of gold and precious uh, 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 metals and so forth in there. And he says something so interesting to me in Proverbs chapter 23. He says in the fourth verse, do not overwork to be rich. Now, you've got to process this just a little bit. 
Because these are people being spoken to who are going to inherit a boatload. Okay? They probably lived differently than any of you could ever imagine. They had the finest of everything. So how does that apply to us? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Here's what happens. When we turn this into a spiritual principle, the idea of being rich is to take the principles of God and apply them to our... We are destined by our relationship with Jesus Christ to inherit a boatload. We inherit what Christ purchased for us. And so when he says don't overwork for riches, spiritually he's saying, listen, you'll be tempted to his sons and now to us spiritually, you'll be tempted to make sure you work at inheriting what God gives you by grace. You'll work really hard to live perfectly because you think God is keeping track. Now, God isn't keeping track like a, like a nasty school teacher with a ruler. God says, I've given you the power to live differently. You've inherited the ability from God himself through Jesus Christ. So he says, don't work at that. Well, here's what happens. We, we read that and we think, oh boy, we've got to try. Listen to me. Maturity is not something you do. It's something God does in you. So when you submit to God, maturity is the result. When you don't submit to God, little areas, big areas, however you need to, to mention that, you will not operate in the maturity that God has for you. You will not be living in the inheritance that Jesus purchased for you. Are we together? You see how this passage might relate to us spiritually. Do not overwork to be rich. Now notice what else he says here. Are you ready? Because of your own understanding, cease. This is God himself. This is the Holy Spirit saying to you, stop it. <laughs> stop working at this so hard. We need to hear this on a regular basis. Let me show you how. Oftentimes we believe that the principles or the promises of God are for us, and they are. But then we believe that we have to work those things. So for an example, if you don't have faith, some people would teach, you can't be healed. So what do we do? We work at building faith. But you can't really find that in the Bible. It says building yourself up upon your most holy faith. Faith is a gift from God. Lest any man boast. It's a gift from God. So in this, in this inheritance that we have, we overwork at times to develop something that God gives us as a gift. And he's saying because of your own understanding. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds are framed by the word of God. So that those things which are uh, not visible, were made, were, that are visible, are made by things that are... Thank you. I was, I was really struggling to get that one out. So that the things which are seen are not made of the things which are visible. See, we understand this by faith. So understanding isn't produced by intellect and study. It's produced by faith. Come on, you've all probably known somebody who knew more than you about the Bible. Okay, there are people out there all the time. I run into this all the time. I run into people who are really learned. 
But they might not know God if he hit them in the head with a brick. Because, see, their learning is what produces. In John chapter 5, I don't know where it is, maybe somewhere in, in the 19th, 20th verse, somewhere in there, and if I'm wrong, it's in that chapter, that, that Jesus said to, to the Pharisees, he, he said something like, um, you study the Scriptures, for in them you think you'll find this level of truth. But he said, they testify of me, and I come to you and you do not receive me. Jesus speaking, not, not me. I keep pointing to myself. I don't mean that they don't receive me, Right? So, so when, when, you, when you process this, you actually think, and again, please don't stop reading the Word of God, but don't read it as an issue of works. Stop that. Cease that, right? In Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 4, look at verse number 5. It says, will you set your eyes on that which is not? Will you set your eyes? For riches certainly make themselves wings. See, he might be trying to get us to, again, do what's been happening through 23 chapters, 22 chapters of Proverbs, to, to elevate the value of biblical truth over your perceived value of riches. You, you understand that, that if somebody shows you riches, you might be tempted to work harder to gain the riches because there are people out there who have boatloads of everything you know the the average wealthy people person who buys a car in the hundreds of thousands of dollars is like an average person going out and buying a used car for a couple thousand dollars it's just, it's just as amazing if you're living from paycheck to paycheck and you can afford a barely running car that costs two or three thousand dollars you should buy it rather than putting it on payments. Why? Because when you work hard at producing the status that you believe is there because of, of, of riches, they'll certainly make themselves wings. When your money flies out the door because you're payment poor, you've made a decision that, is not, that does not align itself with the Word of God. Notice the, the, the fifth verse. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. They literally elevate themselves out of your sight. The number of people who I've counseled who come to me and say something like this. Pastor, I can't even begin to tell you where it all goes. They don't know. I say, well, let's identify this. And honestly, anymore, you know, people don't really use checkbooks back in the olden days when we were closer to God. We wrote stuff down in a little ledger, you know, and you actually had to subtract and do that right. And, 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 and what happened was that if you look at that ledger or if you get into your bank statement or however you do that and look at where you spend your money, you'd be absolutely astounded. It flies away. We don't even know where it goes. Verse number six, do not eat the bread of a miser nor desire his delicacies. Now, this one's hard. He's talking, about, he's talking about money. He's teaching it to, to his children, at least initially. And, and it should be kind of hard for us to process because these kids inherited the wealth of the wealthiest guy on the planet. They inherited the wealth of the, the wealthiest guy. And I just want to tell you something. All of us in this room, you could have figured out how to live on that. 
Right? But what's he saying? He's saying, do not eat the bread of a miser. Do not eat the bread. What is a miser? What, is it, what does it mean? Stingy. Stingy. Okay. But more importantly, so, okay, how deep you want to go into this. Don't misinterpret what he's saying here. This idea about a miser actually comes from someone who sees with an evil eye. Okay? His purpose in withholding is evil. It's self-serving. Okay? Now, let's process this for just a second. None of us have the right in here to tell the other one how to do their stuff. And yet, occasionally, with an evil eye, what we will do... I remember I had his pastor friend... He was consistently believing. Now, that, I, I knew him. He's passed on, went with the Lord, and I'm assuming the Lord, you know, had a conversation with him. But, but you know, this would have been in the late 70s, let's say. And he was consistently calling his friends up that were Christians saying he had this foolproof investment idea to fund the gospel. To fund the gospel. Okay, are you ready? It is not your responsibility to fund the gospel. It's your responsibility to be obedient to God. Obedience will produce that. But the minute your eye is evil, it'll become self-serving. Okay? It's so easy to do. And you say, well, I know people like that. Listen, stop looking outside yourself. This is for you. Where, where you, see, you ever notice how you don't give other people grace that you yourself walk in? I mean, you can, you can do something that probably deserves some level of judgment, and you'll see somebody who does something that you've been delivered from, and you'll be all over them. Well, I can't believe they do that. Can you believe how they act? I can't believe how you acted. I can't believe how I acted. I can't believe God uses me. See, all those things being true, but you see, it's God's choices in all of this and our obedience to his choices. Okay? So, so he's saying, listen, this, this, this evil eye. So I've had the opportunity in leading churches to recognize an evil eye every once in a while in myself. And I remember when God first started speaking to me about helping churches. And, and he was speaking strong to me about helping churches. So I, I would reach out to pastors. In fact, what I can almost guarantee you I'm going to hear when I reach out to a pastor for the first time is they'll tell me how long they've been in ministry and they'll say this, no one has ever reached out to me. No other pastor has ever reached out to me. There was a pastor recently in an area that he came in and he was in that area for over a year. And nobody, no religious leader reached out to him to welcome him and say, let's walk together. Now, we don't have to do things together. You understand that if this is our circle or circus, not everybody's going to like our monkeys. Right? And so, so you got to understand, this is how God calls us to do it. We're not trying to make them like us. We're trying to walk with them as they are like God. Which means that honest conversation and, 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 and you know, process that, that, I mean, I've had some tough conversations. I met with a pastor recently who was wanting to build. 
a church. And I said, well, I got to tell you, since I've been in this church, um, I've met with, with five churches who wanted to build, and three of them didn't. Now, why, why do I keep track of that? Because once you do that with what is perceived to be an evil eye, if what you want to do is build a place that essentially makes its living off of the harm that's produced from other churches. Fat pastors say to me, well, nobody preaches the gospel right. Well, okay, but according to you. I'm going to tell you one thing, one other thing that, that, I, that I hear all the time. I call. I say, hey, man, I just want to, I want to let you know that, first of all, I love ministry. Second of all, I love people who have enough guts to get into it. And third of all, I'm here to help you. That almost always opens the door for them to say something like this. Well, God called me here to create revival, so I'm really sorry how that's going to hurt your church. Oh. 24 years later, one particular church said that. Every leader that came in said that to me. Want to know why? They all went to the same school with the same playbook. Now, here, what I'm trying to get you to see is that there's at times an evil eye behind those things. And so when it says miser, it's not just talking about stingy, although that's part of it. It's somebody who governs that based on an evil eye, based on the function of what they're looking at being evil. You say, wow, how do you judge that? You've got to have honest conversations with people. You've got to have honest conversations with people. Enable the conversation to take place and say, have you ever thought about this? And, and see, it's hard. We need that, right? We need that in the body of Christ. We need that in our church. But we're, 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 we're too nervous. Verse number seven, the first part, for, for as he thinks in his heart, so he is. There's a, I know that we use this scripture at times somewhat out of context because he's talking about someone who, who, who looks forward with an evil eye as he thinks he is, as he thinks in his heart he is. Listen to me. It's no one else's responsibility but God's to build his church. No one else's responsibility to build the church but God's. You say, well, can't we do things to hurt it? Absolutely. But yet, I will tell you, after being in ministry for 40 years, I've had it wrong many, many times, and God still used the church. I've heard lots of people teach about how the Holy Spirit is, 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 is almost nervous. Well, you know, if you do that, the Holy Spirit, now off he goes. Can I point out to you that God is getting people saved, and he's not scared being associated spiritually with what those people represent. Clearest example of that for me are in areas where there isn't a Christian church, where there isn't a gospel church. One of the greatest revivals on the planet is happening in two countries right now, two countries where it's illegal to believe in God. And yet the Holy Spirit shows up there, invades those people's houses, manifest Jesus to them, and they go, hey, this is the real deal. And those people accept that, and they could lose their life because of that. 
So again, let's not get all goofy about this. God can still work even when we miss it. That's why we've got to have those honest conversations. Are we together? I mean, I see it's hard, right? You say, well, but I don't like hearing that. Okay, well, then you can struggle and you know, bounce off the walls until you find the doorway. Because there is a doorway, right? That scripture that, that Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. You say, wide is the way that leads to destruction? Yep. Well, what's he trying to show us? That whatever we do, we enter through the person of Jesus Christ. You know, whatever you do, you, that's the only way to go. All right, skip down to, your, to verse number 12. Notice it says, apply your heart to instruction and your ears to knowledge. The idea of apply, think of it this way. If you were to go outside in the northeastern Colorado sunshine and it's 100 degrees, one of the first things that you might think about is I should apply sunscreen. Why? To, to take care of the unintended evil of the abuse of sunshine. Okay, are you ready? There are people in the body of Christ who likely, maybe us, maybe me, who likely abuse the inheritance of Jesus Christ by, by twisting Scripture and making it say what we need it to say. Okay? So what's he saying? He says, apply your heart. Use your heart. What do you, so, so what if your heart is desperately wicked, like Jeremiah says? Okay. Remember when I was talking about Old Testament and New Testament? Let's break it down one step further. Unsaved, okay, or maybe two steps. Unsaved, saved by faith in a coming Messiah. That's how Old Testament people were saved. You're going to see Old Testament people in heaven. Are you, are you with me? They died expecting a Messiah. That's why in Hebrews it says they died without seeing. They, that's, they didn't see it, but we've been able to see it. Jesus died for us. And so what he's saying to apply this is that we, we apply this to our heart. When it says the heart is desperately wicked above all else, that is an Old Testament specific truth. When Jesus came into your life, he made your old man alive in Jesus Christ and crucified him, having nailed all of that stuff to the cross. Your old guy is dead. Your heart is no longer d desperately wicked. You say, oh, yes, it is. Well, the only reason it is, is because you take the defibrillator of choice and you shock your old guy into life again and say, nope, I believe this is how this works. But to say you're desperately wicked, that's just not true. It's like always saying after you're saved, well, I'm nothing but a dirty, rotten sinner. I am not a dirty, rotten sinner. I'm not. You can be if you'd like. You say, well, why would I want that? Exactly. Why would you want that? Well, see, people think they're showing how, how awesome God is. But what they're really showing is, is how, right? Okay. <laughs> Ignorance is the bridge between personal opinion and knowledge. Okay. You take that personal opinion and you start building this thing towards knowledge. And when you reach knowledge, you recognize, I don't like what I learned. And so you hold on to personal opinion. 
rather than the things of God. So personal opinion says, I am so useless, I am so worthless unless Jesus does stuff. Well, Jesus did stuff. So you're no longer useless, right? And so when we read these scriptures, it says, apply your heart to instructions. Your heart isn't by design any longer wicked. Your old man has been crucified. He says, consider yourself as dead unto sin. He says, and it was a, that was a kind of a, a legal accounting term. Do the math. You're dead to sin. You say, well, no, I'm not. I, I find myself doing the same thing. It's because you are alive to sin in that area. Isn't that encouraging? You actually choose that area over God. You say, well, what, what does that mean, Pastor? It means you have work to do. Apply your heart to instruction. Notice what else it says, last half of that verse. And your ears to words of knowledge. I cannot emphasize to you enough how important it is for you to guard what flows into your ears. Do you understand that if you watch a news report that does not have a biblically understood, balanced approach to the love of God, they will tell you you're not loving God unless you accept the behaviors of other people. It's happening today. How can Christians be so unloving? Christians aren't unloving. None of you are. Your nature is not unloving. Unless, of course, you enter into your old man where he wants to scream and yell at people who are making bad choices. Come on, when you drive up to the homeless guy on the corner with the sign that says anything helps, do you want to roll your window down and, and help them? Or do you want to roll your win, win, window down and say, get a job? See, you're the only one who knows that. <laughs> you got to watch what you put in your ears. Because whatever it is that you're putting in your ears will eventually make its way through your mouth and out into public knowledge. See, the issue is not that you listen to it. The issue is that it affects you. If you listen to stuff and it affects you, you will eventually hear it coming out of your mouth. So people say, oh, I don't remember the word of God. Want to know why? It's not coming into your ears all the time because faith is displayed or comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You say, that should come out of us. When our mouth opens, it should come out of us. Well, amen. Look at verse 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners. Now, now, now <laughs> who would do this? Okay, let me tell you how we do it. When you envy, you want something that someone else has. Okay. Have you ever seen a person who got grace in an area that God was hammering you in? I've been hammered in little teeny areas of attitude that sometimes I just kind of look at God going, man, it just seems like today you're picky. Just picky. I see people all the time who are allowed to think and act and react with attitudes that God is saying, don't you go there. Now, do I envy sinners? I wish God would give me the grace just to behave when I feel like it. 
to be the person that I can be. And on the other hand, you know, when I'm not working, like I used to tell people all the time, <clears throat> at 12 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, I'm off, so be careful. <laughs> now, that was tongue-in-cheek truth, right? But how many of you recognize that many of us will act differently in the sight of our church family than we do on Tuesday? Kind of scary. What he says is don't envy sinners. Yes, God at times, based on maturity, does not give you the keys to the heaven's Corvette. I have a grandson who's learning how to drive. He tells me all the time, I'm a good driver, Papa. Well, I'm not throwing him the keys. Why? Because maturity plays a role. There's a lot of stuff to hit in the city. If we were out here, I'd take him out in the country, put him in somebody's big driveway and say, here you go, run some circles here. Give me a figure eight. Try not to hit the building. It's the big thing over there. <laughs> right? We give them a level of grace, don't we? Why? Because of immaturity. But when we mature, we don't have to be treated like children anymore. That's why Paul said in Corinthians, he says, when I became mature, I put away childish things. See, well, I just want God to treat me with grace. No, what you really want is to be able to believe what you want, when you want, and how you want. All of us do. I'm not, not, please, I'm not trying to preach down to you. I'm trying to get you to recognize that even in your maturity, you oftentimes envy the grace that God gives other people when he's hammering you over what you consider to be the smallest thing. Right? Well, I can't believe God is, cares about, God cares about everything. God cares about everything. Cast your cares on him, Peter says, 1 Peter 5. Cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. He cares for everything. Let him carry him. He's volunteering. Notice it says, this is verse 17 still. He says, do not your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. Be zealous. The, the idea behind zealous is aggressively pursuing. Aggressively pursuing. When I'm zealous for something, we aggressively pursue, or I would aggressively pursue it. And so what is he asking us to do? He's saying, listen, recognize that the fear of the Lord is something to be pursued. You should strive to move after it. Look at verse 20. Do not mix with wine bibbers or bibers. What? See, we don't, <laughs> we don't always, we don't always think the way the Bible, you know, and what's he saying? Don't mix. He's asking you, okay, if you, if I had, uh, which I do have, I have a clean bottle of water right here. I got out of my office. I know where it came from. Out of my office, I don't know where it came from past that. But if you were to bring up some good old northeastern Colorado blow sand, which is available all around this building, and you would put it in here, you would be mixing or literally polluting this purity. Right? So when he says, don't mix, what he's actually asking you to do is to not pollute yourself 
by this. You say, wait, you mean I can't have a glass of wine? That isn't what it says. It's talking about people who overdo it. Not people who, you know, I'm not, I am not the alcohol police. Okay? If you want to drink, knock yourself out. Or drink till you fall down. I don't, you know, whatever. But, but are you understanding what I'm saying here? He says, don't mix with that. There is a principle here that the New Testament talks about that, that literally adulterates your character. If you mix the sand with the water, it pollutes the water. If you mix this with you, it pollutes you. That one's easy. Look at the next one. Or gluttonous eaters of meat. <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> That's like talking about a Christian meeting. Well, where we get together, right? When Christians get together, what do we do? We pray, we talk about the Word, and we eat. <laughs> okay. I don't want to take anything off of this. But remember... The Bible gives us instruction, spiritual, principled instruction for our benefit, not for our lack. God is not trying to take things away from you. He's trying to add truth to you. This mixing is not healthy for you. Verse 21, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty. So when he says, don't be polluted by that, if you went out, Right. And you went with the people. We were with Tracy and I were with some people the other day and, and, and Tracy and I had a really good meal at a really high, high, uh, uh, a real fancy restaurant. Um, and, and the meal was two hundred and fifty dollars for two of us. I went, oh my. It was really good. Now, that was for our, I think for our 45th wedding anniversary. So it's at least two years ago. You cannot do that. You should not do that every week. Okay, and I said with, with in earshot of these friends, I said, "Man, we should go back to that restaurant." And Tracy went, "Wait, what? You know, we had we had an appetizer that was twenty six dollars. It was two little pieces of of, of scallop, thirteen dollars a piece. It was so pretty, you wanted to take a picture of it, right?" And he's saying, "Don't." <laughs> The drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty. Why? Because they will be so captivated by that that they will actually spend their livelihood to get themselves to that place. See, why did he tell us that? To benefit us? Well, just don't be associated. He's actually saving you from poverty. And drowsiness will cause a man to be clothed with rags. What's drowsiness? Does this just mean he's tired? How many of you ever ate a, a really good meal that was big? How many of you want to take a nap 20 minutes later? Or 10 minutes later? Now, don't raise your hand on this one, but if you've ever drank yourself into the let's take a nap stage, you know what I'm talking about? You, you need to understand that that will take you to poverty. Say, oh no, pastor, I have full control. You do not have full control. And here's how I know you don't have full control. Because as a Christian, if you had full control, you'd, you, you really would submit yourself to God more. 
See, don't think you have control over evil when you don't have control over the greatest promise that God ever gave. Draw near to, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. That is so simple. And what do we do? Turn and go the other way. Don't tell me you have control. Because if you did as a Christian, that control would give evidence by drawing near to God with every breath you take. But we make choices, don't we? In Proverbs, an interesting book. Look, if you would please, at the 29th verse. Now, some of these just go in, in, in cycles. And they begin to process how this kind of works by showing us long passages of, of related kind of testimony or related truth. Verse number 29. Who has woe? Woe means um, judgment or, or, or pain on the head. Um, who has sorrow? Who has contention? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of the eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Now, I don't, I don't know, again, those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine, verse 31, when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. It literally talking about our desires. When it swirls around smoothly, at, at the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Notice that he ties our complaints, our pain, our sorrow, our, our struggles to this. Now, it's not the only cause of those things, but it's one of the causes of those things. Can you see the connection there? See, when he says, hey, listen, this whole, this whole book, this whole chapter has lots of things in it about that, about how this works. All right, let's skip down to verse uh, 3 of 24. So we're in an area now, um, um, biblically, where most of this is now going to become things that people wrote down and are now putting together here because Solomon once said that. So think of it this way. There were people who followed the king around to write down whatever he said. And so then at the end, they, they, they gather this together and, and put it in the book. So notice it says, through wisdom, a house is built and by understanding it is established. And by understanding now, okay, physically we build a house because we're smart enough to or whatever. And we have understanding which becomes that, that foundation. But what he's really saying is how this spiritually works. Your house inside your house will be built based on understanding. Okay. Now, again, let me, let me throw in Hebrews 11 again where it says, by faith we understand. You have to approach your house by faith. How, does it, how is it supposed to work? And by understanding, it is established. What does that understanding do? It builds a foundation for you to rest your family on. Okay? This idea of just allowing children to raise themselves, that's not a very good idea. Understanding, so faith producing understanding, understanding gives a foundation that says, here's where you can stand. It says, by knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Again, physically they might be talking here. We can draw these spiritual ideas from that. Verse 6, for by wise counsel you wage your own war. Okay. He's not talking about going to war as one person against a whole bunch. The war that he's likely talking about is the personal war that you all wage. 
where you don't know what to do next, where there's a fight that happens. How many of you ever had a, don't raise your hands, but how many of you ever had a fight on the inside? That, that conversation that takes place where you're saying, man, you know, I'd really, how many ever stopped from giving a piece of your mind to somebody else? Right? You really wanted to. You're just, bless God. You know, it's happening all the time. In fact, I personally think that social media is a scourge full of that. Where there's, there's no responsibility to give somebody a piece of your mind. Just send. You wouldn't probably say that. personally, in the face of somebody like that. So when he says, by wise counsel, we need each other so that we can speak to each other inside of the war that all of us are waging independently. See, you don't, you don't necessarily know what I'm going through. I mean, you can, you can imagine, you know, with our family situation or with, you know, whatever else you think we might be doing, but you don't really know. For you to be connected and become a, 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 a wise counsel of that, I'm going to have to share a little bit. So I'm going to tell you a story here as I kind of close this down. I want to get to this verse. When Miss Mary walked in this morning, now, Mary retired from the hospital, and she was one of those people that, that transcribed the, the $14 college words that the doctors use. She probably can spell better than all of you because she can, you know, spell, you know, intercranial whatever, you know, because that's what somebody said. And she asked about Amber. And I told her, and we had a little conversation, and she asked me questions that she can ask because she's seen reports like this. And she goes, well, what about this? And I, I just thanked her at the end, and here's what she said. She says, that's what I'm here for. And she didn't know I was going to teach this. But that's what I'm here for. See, as Christians, that's why we're here, to speak into the necessary counsel that you need to wage war personally. You cannot do this by yourself. You cannot. It is so difficult to wage war. Now, listen, if you're not in a war, you might check the direction you're going. Say, oh yeah, everything's great, Pastor. You ought to do things that make you run into the devil. That's how you know you're going the right direction. Right? He just goes, well, you, ain't, you ain't doing this. I'm going to teach a, a message um, coming up in, in a month or two, whenever it settles in me, and I'm going to talk about the distractions that the devil offers us. See, the devil always will ask us questions to distract us from what God has said to us. Do you know the devil tempted Jesus to prove his lineage? Are you really the Son of God, if you are the Son of God? He tempted Jesus to prove his biblical lineage. Jesus didn't even answer the question. But you see, throughout society today, we're being distracted by these questions. Now notice he says, by five, by, by wise, verse 6, by wise counsel you wage your war, and in a multitude of counselors there is safety. Notice this will help us, help us find a way forward in our war. I had a pastor call me one time, and he was in a kind of a crisis. And in the crisis, he kept mentioning this person's name. Now, I, 
I don't know who goes to their church. This, this pastor isn't from around here. Um, I don't know who goes to their church. So he can, he can say, you know, Tracy. And I know it wasn't my Tracy, right? It was some Tracy in his church or some, you know, Glenn in their church. And, and I said, it sounds to me like you need to have a conversation with Glenn or with Tracy. Say, counsel helped him address what was in the way of him doing what God had for him to do. And then he said, you're not the first person to tell me that. Okay, there's a multitude of counselors that'll help you walk. We cannot do it by ourselves. Amen? Amen. Let's stop there. We'll pick it up um, next week in, in chapter 24 again. So read with me. Read ahead if you would. We'll, some of this, because it's big passages together, we'll move a little bit quickly, more quickly. So, Father, thank you today for this time. We bless you, Lord God, for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. To subscribe to our podcast, search New Life Eckley in all of the major podcasting apps. Audio and video of our sermons are posted at newlifeeckley.com slash live, and you can watch sermon slices weekdays on social media. Search at New Life Eckley. Our main service is at 10 a.m. Mountain Time every Sunday. Thanks for listening.